Is God doing a work of prayer in your life? We're closing in on the, these 40 days of prayer. And I wonder if God has encouraged you or equipped you to continue with the task. So important, this conversation, this communion with the God of the universe. God listens to prayers. Isn't that amazing? If you listen to me, Psalm 8, who am I that you would care for me, the Son of Man? When I look out on creation, you are so big and I'm so small, yet you still care for me. This is the task of prayer. And it's a privilege to come and preach and lead our congregation and during a series in prayer. This morning I want to ask something maybe surprising. I want to ask, what does prayer have to do with football? And I ask this not only because uh, we have some uh, Florida fans among us that are holding their head. Didn't you pray? I've been praying. My Baylor Bears are 8-0. Eight and, eight and oh. Just Just kidding. But uh, on November of 2010, uh, the Bills and the Steelers were playing an overtime game when, at, locked at 16 apiece, Bills receiver Steve Johnson juts up the sideline and he's going to make a game-winning catch. And this is what happens. said that Fitzpatrick was fearless. He takes the shot down the field, working against Taylor with Clark coming over and all he has to do is hold on to it and the Bills are going to have their third consecutive win. <laughs> Every time. Let's do it one more time. Ah, Can you believe it? The easiest pass imaginable. He drops it for the game winner. And afterwards in 2010, I don't know who was on Twitter in 2010, but Steve Johnson was on Twitter in 2010. And this, he, he, he sort of does a prayer on Twitter. And this is what he says. He says this, I praise you 24-7. And this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. I don't know why he includes thanks, though. Because the, the larger point seems to be his opening statement of prayer. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. For Steve Johnson and for many of us, prayer is a confusing journey. How God works in our life is a very confusing journey. And so you might not say it exactly how Steve Johnson said it. Somebody after the 9 o'clock uh, service said... Uh, I thought you were going to say, well, defensive backs pray too. <laughs> but not, not the case. You, I praise you 24-7 and this is how you do me. I wonder what we do with unanswered prayers. The times in our lives where we so much want to control God in our lives. When we so much want a gift. When we so much begging on heaven's door to give us some good gift what we think that we deserve 
And so you might not say it like Steve Johnson, but if you pray hard enough, if you worship long enough, if you experience enough suffering in your life, you're bound to ask, like Steve Johnson put it, I praise you 24-7. And this is how you do me? Remember Moses, he pleaded with God to continue to to walk with the people of God, Israel, to go into the promised land, to, to cross the Jordan River. God refused his request because Moses got angry with a holy God. Can you imagine Moses saying, maybe he did, maybe it's not recorded in Scripture, I led your people out of Egypt, God, and this is how you do me. Really? Moses suffered the burden of unanswered prayer. King David, remember he had a son. He pleaded a week with God to spare his son, going without food night and day, praying that his infant son might not be taken with him. His son died. King David, the writer of many of the Psalms, also suffered under the burden of unanswered prayer. The army of Israel would pray to God for victory in battle, only to suffer one humiliating loss after the other. Lord, what gives? Four people in the Old Testament, Moses, Job, Jonah, and Elijah, all prayed to God that they might die. They too were blessed under the burden of unanswered prayers, thankfully for them and thankfully for us. The prophet Habakkuk, the prophet Jeremiah. Now, these are all men of God who spoke the very words of God. They prayed that Jerusalem, God's holy city, would be spared from the Babylonians. Did that happen? No. They went for a season in captivity under Babylonian exile. The prophets also suffered under the burden of unanswered prayer. Did this only happen in the Old Testament? No, believers in the New Testament. We continue to feel the weight in our souls of unanswered prayer. Remember what Paul said? I plead with the Lord three times that you would take this thorn in the flesh away from me. What happened? You would think if God would answer any prayer, it would be the the apostle that wrote much of the New Testament that planned many of the churches in the Mediterranean world that very first century. No, God didn't take his thorn in the flesh, but Paul learned to boast in his weaknesses so that the Spirit of God may rest on his life. And so all of these characters, biblical characters in a myriad of different ways, suffered under the burden of unanswered prayer. What do you do when prayers go unanswered? Well, first of all, you do what none of us like to do. That is, you wait. You wait upon the Lord. It might surprise you to let you remind you that when Moses ascended Mount Sinai, you thought, well, he he just got everything he wanted. God met with him, but he actually had to wait six days before God said a single word. And, you know, in my own mind, you know, I sort of, what was Moses thinking there on the mountain, six whole days just by yourself, right? Some of us can, you know, go crazy for just like 10 minutes alone. He's there six whole days. Are you hiding, Lord? Hello, are you there? Did I do something wrong? Did I miss 
hear you? What am I to do here? What are you? Should I just go home? Or did he learn to wait patiently for the Lord? Maybe he had learned that he needed to confess his sins before he met with the Holy God. Maybe he was praying for Israel for forgiveness and mercy on the top of Mount Sinai. But he waited. Daniel, the prophet, prayed a prayer. And he waited 21 days until he got an answer to that prayer. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 42, the text says that all the commanders of Israel came to Jeremiah the prophet. All the people from the least to the greatest came near and asked Jeremiah the way that we should go. Go ask the Lord what we should do. They were in the midst of a war. And Jeremiah the prophet waited 10 days for an answer. In the midst of all these people and all these pressure coming down on the shoulders of Jeremiah the prophet, he waited until the Lord answered. Philip Yancey put it like this, God's plan unfolds like a leisurely opera, not a top 40 tune. If you went to the opera and you're like, let me give $150. And that sucker ended in four minutes. You would be claiming, I want my money back, right? But when it happens with God in prayer, hey, God's unfolding a beautiful opera in your life. You say, just give me a song that says, oh, baby, baby, four minutes, I'll be done with it, right? We went over yesterday. But God's plan unfolds like an opera. There's phases. There's a complex story that God is wanting to tell with your life. And so what do we do with unanswered prayers? We wait with open arms. We wait before the God of the universe that loves us, that is crazy about us, that's sovereign, that we can't control God. And so we first we wait. The second image I want to leave you with, and really two images I want to leave you with today How do we live a praying life? Let me suggest that it grows out of the tension between two images that I want to share with you this morning. The first image is this, and it builds a really upon last week what my friend Kevin DeYoung uh, preached on wrestling prayer. The first image comes from Luke 11, that of knocking and boldly asking at the throne room of God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Jesus is talking and sharing about prayer right after he gives the disciples the Lord's prayer. And so he continues to teach them about prayer. So you think that this might be important, how to live, how to pray, how to live a praying life. This is what he says, Luke chapter 11, verse five. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And so in Luke 11, Jesus is telling a parable. This is what prayer is. This is the secret of prayer. And so a friend arrives at midnight. Not an uncommon occurrence in this part of the world where people would often leave on a long journey after sunset because of the harsh, sunny climate. Sort of uh, basically like Florida here. So the friend arrives and your cupboards are bare. What do you do? You go to your neighbor. Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. 
Now, for you and I, this doesn't seem like a big request. It's just a few loaves of bread. If we have them, well, fine, take them. If you don't, no. But, but Kenneth Bailey, Presbyterian missionary who spent 40 years in Lebanon, gives us a little bit of the cultural background to really what is going on. You see, folks in that part of the world, they actually used bread and they broke off bite-sized pieces to dip it in a common dish full of meat and vegetables to sop up the entire meal. So basically, what I'm saying is the bread was like forks and spoons in that age, right? And so what you are really asking for at midnight at your sleeping friend's house is an entire meal. The entire dish with the meat and the vegetables to include alongside the bread. And so get this, Jesus is telling us a humorous story. You miss it because you're not a first century uh, person, right? But trust me, it's an absurdly crazy story that Jesus is trying to say. He's about to share an over-the-top response, a completely absurd response of the neighbor. The neighbor gives a threefold no, no, no to you that is looking for help. What does he say? Verse 7. Do not... Bother me, one. The door is now shut. What do they have, like nine locks on it? Like we had in Africa? I mean, it's not hard to open a door, right? My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. And so, a Middle Easterner, hearing Jesus' parable, would have laughed. They would have LOL'd, right? They would have laughed out loud. They would have laughed and laughed at this Lame excuse. The parable is meant to be absurdly funny. It's a a, sort of a hyperbole of parables. What a cranky and rude neighbor they would have thought. Nobody in any village would have ever been so rude. It's literally inconceivable in this first century hospitable culture. No way. No way someone could be that rude. Why? Because the very next morning, everyone in the entire village would have heard about this extreme rudeness of the neighbor. You couldn't get up out of bed to open the door. You couldn't put your children to sleep again. That is inconceivable, as someone once said in a movie, right? So here's the point. Verse 8. That was a a, a little uh, 80s reference to you folks that might have been younger than me. So here's the point. Verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his imprudence. What does that mean? NIV uh, uh, translated as his shameless audacity, his imprudence, his shamelessness. Yet because of his imprudence, because of his shameless audacity, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I don't care that you're my friend. But you're pounding on my door. You're about to wake up my kids anyway. You are being shameless in your asking. I'm just going to give you what you want. That's what it's all about. But think about it. Usually somebody who has shameless audacity is not a person of noble character. This is the person that says what shouldn't be said. What really never should be said. What you couldn't imagine saying this is... The person that says something with shameless audacity. But get this, in prayer, it's actually a virtue. And so Jesus is giving us a secret of how to lead a praying life. 
This is a virtue. Shameless audacity before the throne of God. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 9, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and knock and it will be opened to you. Ask, seek, knock. Do you get the increasing intensity of these verbs? From asking, maybe this is politely, to sort of chasing you down, then to like knocking on your door, even though it's midnight, right? And they're actually present imperative verbs. Preacher, what does that mean? Well, that means, thank you for asking, that the text is really saying, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Present imperative verbs. Be bold. Be persistent. Even be belligerent in prayer. Somehow God likes that. If my kids are belligerent with me, it's room time. Somehow God the Father is such a grace-filled person. He loves us engaging with Him in these belligerent prayers. He goes, come on now. I can handle all your belligerent prayers. In fact, that's a secret to live living a praying life. And so you might think, well, why does God care? Why does God want these belligerent, bold, asking prayers? Author Jerry Sitzer views persistence through the eyes of a good parent. He writes this. I love what he says. He says, my kids have asked me for many things over the years. A bicycle, boat, car, house, exotic vacations. Has your... Exotic vacation? Anyway, uh, you name it, they've asked for it. I ignore them most of the time. I'm a parent made of granite. (laughs) Love it, love it. He says, my ears perk up, however, when they persist. Because persistence usually means they're serious about something. If we can't be persistent in prayer, how much is that really in our heart? In other words... And so Jesus is trying to give us a secret about prayer. Prayer works as you are persistent about the work of prayer. And so I ask you today, are you bold in your prayers? Are you persistent in your prayers? Do you never give up in your prayers? God is inviting you to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. One author, another author offers this sobering thought. Maybe it pierces your heart as it does mine. He says this, one of the reasons we lack spiritual depth in our day is because of our failure to persist in prayer. What would my life look like if I persisted in prayer? Would I know God more? Would I be increased in my holiness? Would I walk with the Spirit just a little more tenderly and more closely? What if we as a church persisted in prayer? Would our neighbors be one to Christ? Would we be witnesses of Jesus and have more than enough opportunities to share the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ? I think we would. He says we don't pray, and when we do, we trifle at it. And then Jesus ends this whole parable with with a parallel thought that has, I think, a surprising twist. The parallel occurs, look at verse 13. He says, If then you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and then in parallel fashion, 
We expect Jesus to say, arguing from the lesser to the greater, well, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good gifts? Right? That's what we expect him to say. It's like a parallel thought, but Jesus puts a little twist on it, right? Because he doesn't say that. What does he say? Huh? He says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you, what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. In other words, Jesus is saying, be bold in your asking. Knock on heaven's door. Be belligerent. Be shameless in your audacity for a particular situation, particular relationship, particular petition. We are boldly knocking. Give me this gift, O Lord. Give me this gift, O Lord. I'm not going to let you go. Until you bless me, right? And God, in a sense, is committed to answering only just a few prayers. Sorry to break this to you. He promises to give you wisdom when you ask Him. He promises to give you forgiveness when you confess your sins. And here He promises to give you the Holy Spirit. He promises to give you more of Himself. In other words... You had it in your mind that if Lord would just give me this one thing, all would be better in my life. Lord, if you could just get rid of this obstacle or do this one thing in my marriage or my kids or with my finance or this, that and the other, then I would really be released to praise you. Does God promise to answer those prayers? No, but he promises to answer He will give you the Holy Spirit. He will give you more of Himself. In other words, Paul says, He will give you immeasurably more than all you can imagine or think. Maybe, just maybe, God wants to give you more of Himself. Maybe that's enough in prayer. So how do you deal with unanswered prayer? First, you wait. Second, you persist in prayer. And then Jesus says, well, you might be receiving in prayer something far greater than you even asked for. More of the long-suffering of God. The Holy Spirit to get through the hard times of life. More, more of the Holy Spirit to make you patient and, and or, or courageous. or Whatever you need for this particular moment in your life. He promises to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the secret of prayer. How do I live a praying life? Be bold. That's the first image. Second image comes from the world of TV commercials. Now, uh, I, I know that a lot of you read the, the Bible like I do with TV commercials just in the back of your mind. Just right there. But some, <laughs> Thank you, uh, one person, for laughing. Some of you may remember the, the Nesty commercials, right? Take the Nesty plunge. People, usually supermodels, were sweating sexy sweat on a hot summer day. Sweat was dripping down their faces in the commercials. And what happened? Inevitably, someone would just fall back and a pool would catch them. Take the nesty plunge. It feels so good. This is what it's like to take the nesty plunge. Let me get this video to remind you. doesn't want to be there, right? On a hot Florida day, just falling back, being refreshed, 
Richard Foster said, this is what the prayer of relinquishment is like for the children of God. You bang and bang and bang on heaven's door. There comes a time when you get to pray the prayer of relinquishment, that you get to fall into the arms of Jesus to be refreshed in your soul. And so you take the nesty plunge, you pray the prayer of relinquishment, you begin to recognize that prayer is not about control. It's not about our controlling of God, but about the relinquishment of our control on to God's big shoulders. It's about surrendering. It's about releasing. It's about relinquishing control. Remember who prayed the prayer of relinquishment in the New Testament? It was Jesus himself. Jesus, the Son of God. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So what did Jesus do? He wrestled with God there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup of suffering. Remove this cup of wrath. Remove this cup of the cross. The scripture says, you know it, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And so what is he doing? He's doing the very thing that he told his disciples to do. In other words, he's praying boldly. He's praying persistently. He's going to the throne again and again and again all night long, pleading with God, Lord, is there another way, Father? For this redemption to happen. Can you take this cup from me? And what does the father say to him? There's no other way. This is the only way. This is the only way. And so he too, the son of God, suffers under the burden of unanswered prayer. This was a real request made before His Father, take this cup from me. And so before there was a crucifixion of His flesh on Calvary, think about it. First, there was a crucifixion of His will in the Garden of Gethsemane. A death to His own will so that God's purposes in the world and for His life might be advanced. And so I ask you, what does God do with a life when he begins to crucify a will. The same holds true for you and me as it does for Jesus. No, we're not the unique atonement for sin, but there is always a fruit bearing that comes out when someone's will is crucified and we begin to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is the prayer of relinquishment. This is the prayer that is putting to death the self. All the great saints in the Bible, think about it, eventually come to pray, many of them at least, a prayer of relinquishment. Abraham, going up to Mount Moriah with his son of the promise, Isaac, relinquishes the son of the promise, his only son. Mary is a young teenage girl with her whole hopes and dreams with Joseph. There she relinquishes her future to God's purposes. Paul relinquished his thorn in the flesh that he might experience the Spirit of God more deeply in his life. And so I ask you today, what do you need 
to relinquish to God. Not after you've prayed nonchalantly. Not after you've prayed casually. But after you've persisted and begged God and and pleaded with God and, and fought with God and wrestled with God. After you've done that, where is the prayer of relinquishment? Because the wisdom of a praying life knows when to continue to lean into prayer. God, I'm going to go for days and weeks and months, maybe even years and decades, praying this way. Or when, in God's wisdom, do you say, I've done all that. Now that the only prayer that I have in my soul left to pray is this, not my will, but yours be done. Is it a sin that you need to relinquish? That's burdening your conscience, burdening your life? Is it a relationship that you need to give up unto the Lord and to His sovereign, loving control? Is there an area of anxiety or worry in your life that continues to harbor and burden your life? Where do you need to pray the prayer of relinquishment? Not my will, but yours be done. Because after you've lamented, after you've boldly persisted in prayer, there may come a time where God calls you to say, trust me. God is saying, trust me in this. Crucify your will. And so how do we live a praying life? What does that conversation look like week in and week out? It's really in this tension, is it not? In this tension of Luke 11 and Luke 22, between bold asking, bold seeking, bold knocking, continuing to seek, continue to seek and knock and ask. Be bold. God loves those bold asking prayers. But the tension is, there may come a day, maybe you've already surpassed a day, when you need to pray the prayer of relinquishment. This is a praying life between bold asking and refreshing surrender and relinquishment. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are always good to us. You are amazing in that You continue to want to dialogue, sometimes long past our ability to do so. You long to maintain the dialogue. And Father, You often ask us to Say, not my will, but yours be done. And so you would give us the wisdom. We ask for it. You say you'd give it to us. The wisdom to know the difference. When, Lord, to continue to be bold and to, to, to ask and seek and knock. And when also, won't you give us the wisdom to know when to pray the prayer of relinquishment. When to fall into the arms of Jesus and surrender to greater trust. That your purposes in our life and for your world may be advance and we ask it in Christ's name.